Hello and welcome to The Tangent Tree. My name is Samantha Stephen. My name is Simon Dillon. And today we're talking about war. And what is it good for? I knew you were going to do that 100%. We did not discuss that and I knew he was going to do it. Well, there we are. You're a cheesy motherfucker. I am indeed. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't quite Samuel L. Jackson that because I feel guilty for some reason, but you are a cheesy motherfucker. Okay, uh, accepted. I'll let you steer this one a little bit more. Because war... And what it's good for is such a huge era in well, terms of film. I mean, we've been making film about war since we made films. Well, I think I'm going to sort of skirt, skirt over some key highlights okay. from the, 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 you know, war film history. I mean, I would argue that, the, for example, the first great war film is All Quiet on the Western Front from yes. 1930, which um, I actually saw at a rather tender age. It put me off joining the army. <laughs> I mean, uh, which I think was the point. Yes. Because obviously the, the the remarkable thing about All Quiet on the Western Front was it's told from the German point of view. It's set in World War One, obviously, and it's about a, a recruit who goes from idealism to the horrible reality of war and the kind of awful scene at the end where, you know, there he is on the battlefield and he's kind of reaching out towards the butterfly. Do you remember? Yes, 100%. You know, and um, I remember seeing that kind of, eerie image with all the graves at the end and I just it never honestly that 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 finished it for me i was never joining definitely the didn't romanticize it um so that film did its job and it is i would actually argue that all quiet on the western front is the first great um american movie of the talky era actually i would argue yeah for, for, well i would yes i think i would and i really love i think it's it's brilliant i think it stands up today um on a similarly grim note since we're talking about world war one i always people always say to me what's the most powerful anti-war film ever made and i always either pick all quiet on the western front or i pick paths of glory the stanley kubrick film now the thing is it's a bit of a cheat because paths of glory isn't most it's not that it's it's less an anti-war film in a sense. It's more an attack on the military mentality and the idea of the class system that's, you know, because it's it's about an ill-conceived attack on an impregnable German position that this um, commander is manipulated into, um, well, through his own arrogance. He tries this for military glory and it fails, of course. And so Kirk Douglas is told, the captain, he's told, you know, you've got to select three of your men to be tried and shot for cowardice. And it's absolutely awful. And it's a brilliant film because it's the war scenes are brilliantly done. Kubrick was way ahead of his time in some of the roving shots and steady cam. It's not steady cam, but it looks like yes, steady cam. That's okay, how good the, it is. Because the technology wasn't developed at that point. And it's probably Kirk Douglas's best performance. The courtroom scenes, there's the you know the line of, you know, I'm ashamed to be a member of the human race. Well, it actually comes from that film it's you know um i'm ashamed there are days when i'm ashamed to be a member of the human race and this is one of them yes um and i think it would be too much to bear if it wasn't for sort of his character's humanity and the way he um but it is it is an absolutely damning damning indictment what year did that one come out uh, 1957 i think there's something that's worth noting is there's a very interesting trajectory where you come from after first world war Yes. And films are quite negative generally, not even just in war films, but everybody has quite a somber feel and a dark feel yeah. as in the depravity of human humanity's soul has been revealed and we're like, oh, we suck. Yes. Um, and then it kind of upticks because people need to be motivated. They need to be inspired. They need to be basically recharged in, a, in order to make it out of 
and keep going after the Second World War. Well, it's interesting you should mention that because I do think there are a number of war films that are out-and-out propaganda, Mm. okay? I mean, for example, um, I I mean, you know, we talk about films... I mean, this is slightly different, but we talked about... We have in past podcasts talked about propaganda on both sides of this. Like, you know, obviously Goebbels had a lot of propaganda and and Hollywood had, you know, films like Casablanca or... And in the British film industry had films like Mrs. Miniver or or Went the Day Well, which were designed to sort of... But they weren't they weren't glamorizing war, but they were trying they were trying to get people to sort of behind the idea that we have to fight. To me, that's a bit different to something like Rambo, where it's kind of, in a sense, romant. Well, anything that romanticizes war, yeah, you know, the, the, some of those awful John Wayne films like you know, the Green Berets, and you know, the, they, those are the sorts of things that I have a, have a problem with sometimes because I think that they romanticize war, but that's different again to an enjoyable war film themed film like the great escape or you know obviously wartime set adventure stories like where eagles there or whatever that's totally different but i think that um in the case of uh some of the world war ii i think also it depends on the war because i think it's generally accepted now you know world war one was just an absolute bloodbath and then it was on both sides there was you know it was absurd whereas world war ii i think is generally seen as no that was a fight against evil essentially and although it was horrible and horrific and it would you know no war is ever straightforward in that way we were fighting for our lives yes. and our future and that's reflected in you know films like the longest day or more recently i guess to a degree films like saving private ryan although even saving private ryan doesn't um it doesn't let it be that straightforward, does it? Well, in terms of war films, what would your definition of a war film be in terms of does it where does it need to be set, what needs to unfold, and where does it need to go? Well, I think it needs a war film needs to be about armed conflict. It's as simple as that. Whether it's on a you know a submarine or a you know in the battlefields or wherever really, it, it, or in a you know or in the RAF, or it, it's about a film about armed conflict, where yes. that is the theme of the story, and the protagonists are involved in armed conflict. So yes, so All Quiet on the Western Front, Paths of Glory qualify in that way, um, as does a film like Das Boot, which is set in a submarine. Have you ever seen Das Boot? Yes. The, which is an amazing film. Um, actually, can I talk about Das Boot for a minute? I just want to say this quickly about Das Boot, because um, there are a lot of submarine-set movies. I would say that Das Boot is the greatest submarine-set film because it deals with a real sweaty claustrophobia of of and actually long stretches of boredom when they're waiting for things to happen and then when it does it's absolutely the terror of being depth charged you know is conveyed so brilliantly and then you also have they get you know the, the food goes rotten and they grow lots of facial hair and it's sweaty and nasty and claustrophobic and it really and Jürgen Prochnow who plays the captain he's so good in that film and I love the irony, the bitter irony in the end, which I won't spoil. But it's it's just, for me, it's such a great film. Um, what about its sexier cousin, Hunt for Red October? Well, yes. it's a, Well, <laughs> to me, that's not a war film. That's a thriller. Yeah. That's well, a, and that's why, why I was asking the question of the difference between the two and what qualifies, what doesn't qualify. Yeah, I mean, that's not set during wartime in an armed conflict. It's about a crisis. It's, it's a thriller. Yes. And as is Crimson Tide. Do you see what I mean? Those are all thrillers. Um, whereas something like... Um, I yeah you know I what was the what was the one uh, I'm trying to think now um you know the some of the other submarine movies like um you know we dive at dawn those sorts of things that those are proper war, proper submarine war films okay so what about an era like the cold war would you consider anything that happens within that and is from that 
angle. No, again, again, it's not an actual armed conflict, so I wouldn't consider those to be war films. They're often good spy thrillers set mm. around that, but mm. I wouldn't consider that to be an actual war. Um, on the other hand, uh, there are some things, I mean, you know, okay, so let's take, for example, you, you, you get a film like Platoon, which is obviously about the Vietnam War and one a number of Oscars, Oliver Stone. But he went on to do Born on the 4th of July. Now, is that a war film, for example, do you think? I haven't seen it. Oh, right. You see, see, to my mind, I wouldn't call that a war film. I mean, even though it is absolutely and intrinsically about war in one sense, about yes. the effect of war on somebody. But I don't really call it a war film because it sort of covers so much of his life from childhood into, you know, obviously idealism, signing up, going to Vietnam, gets shot, paralyzed from the mid-chest down, comes home, gets disillusioned gets filled with self-loathing and all the rest of it and has to come to terms with a lot of PTSD. There's a life and, story. And, you know, and, and, and then eventually emerges as an anti-war activist. And I, and the whole irony of the story being, you know, he's every bit as brave as an anti-war activist as he was on the battlefields yes. in Vietnam. So it's a, and it's a true story. And so to me, that's almost like a biopic rather than a war film, even though it is about war. Yes. Um, and then, Actually, speaking of, of, of Vietnam, it's it, it's interesting to me. One, see, to me, the most effective war films are not necessarily banging a preachy thing over the audience's head about anti-war, 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 but they're more an examination of the darkness in men's souls. And also how awful war is. Well, yes. And but, exposing that reality I mean, without I, filter. I, I'll give you two examples. Apocalypse Now. And that's the one I was going to mention. Yeah, which is an un- unashamedly thrilling film, actually. And it's it's an incredibly epic piece of work. I mean, needs a big screen. Try and see it on a big screen if you can. It yes. really needs it. And um, but you so you have the big action set pieces, and that you know there's a lot of stuff in that film where it's almost satirical in a sense with Colonel Kilgore and the you know the, the um, some of the stuff early in the film. But then it gets more into there's that speech that Marlon Brando gives about uh, how he was saw all the he went they inoculated a village of children. Okay, and then the villagers went and hacked all the inoculated arms off and there's that big pile of inoculated arms and he start, he saw this pile of arms and he broke down and he cried and he wept and and then he said, and I love this, he says, it's suddenly it's like I was shot with a diamond. Yes. He says, the, the genius of that, the will to do that, and he's gone insane, okay, because of this. Mm. And I love that film because it's actually not an anti-war film, it's actually about, as I said, it's about the evil in men's souls. And there's a similar thing idea at play in The Hurt Locker. Do you remember The Hurt Locker? Which, brilliantly directed by Catherine Bigelow. And again, it's almost an unashamed thriller, that film, rather than a war film, because it, although it's not, it is a war film. And this guy is addicted to diffusing these bombs and flirting with death the way he does and wants to go back and back and back, doesn't want to spend time with his family, wants to go back. And that whole idea of war being a drug to certain people, not to everybody to certain people and again it's about the damage that it does to men's souls as opposed to um oh look isn't war awful do you understand what i mean yeah 100 percent. i think um there's also it's very interesting who the film picks as the individual protagonist or the group of protagonists within a war film because that changes the perspective of everything so if you're going to go for someone like churchill Um, or Hitler, so a leader within a wartime period, that will give you a very different feel to a soldier on the front line. Absolutely. And that's like you've got the two recent films. You've got uh, Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk. Yes. Which is absolutely the kind of grunt-eye view of that 
awful situation of the evacuation. Just the fear of yeah. when you see the planes dive bobbing. And the way they all rush onto those ships, but then they get sunk, you know, and they rush into another ship and they get sunk. And it just, it, I mean, it's brilliant. It's a brilliant, I, I thought Dunkirk was terrific. But contrasting with that, you have the, the recent Churchill film that's about Dunkirk, and I can't yes. remember what it's called, uh, Darkest Hour with Gary Oldman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and again, that's, but that's about it from, as you say, a totally different perspective from the perspective of the, of the leaders. And you get a completely different... Um, I recently showed my children The Longest Day, the D-Day film, and that's the documentary. The thing is, that film has a documentary tone almost, except for the fact that um, it's got all these big stars in it to kind of, oh, look, it's, it's still a film. It's yes. still, you know. And um, they found that... I mean, I love The Longest Day. I think it's a terrific film. Um, and my children found it fascinating too. And I, the main reason I showed it to them was because I told my youngest, you're too young to watch Saving Private Ryan, but I will show you this. <laughs> yeah. you know, you know. Fair and, he's, and he's fascinated with D-Day and with history and so on. But what that does is actually does both. It gives both the kind of grunt's eye view and the, the big military view of people pushing flags around on a map. But um, I've got a funny story about The Longest Day. Okay, actually. tell us. There's a, there's a family photograph um, which is me and my cousins and in it they're all smiling and I look miserable as hell and do you know why that is <laughs> why because I was at my grandmother's house and I was watching The Longest Day it was the first time I'd ever seen it it was on television I was absolutely riveted okay and halfway through it I got dragged out for this photo oh, <laughs> and I was no. like you're dragging me away from this brilliant film that I want to and so I look so so pissed off in that photo. A picture of filmic despair. <laughs> it's me at the age of 10 or so, but just looking really fed up and everyone else looks really happy. So um, anyway, sorry, that's totally irrelevant. Um, what else have I got on this list? Do you watch, you watch The Bridge on the River Kwai? Right? Yes. Well, The Bridge on the River Kwai was actually one of my first experiences of war films, that and The Great Escape. Yes. Those were the two. And again, I watched them with my grandma, who I've talked about on one of her many VHS tapes that she saved. <laughs> um, because my grandfather fought in world war ii right. um he originally started on the english side switched to the american because they had better food he said <laughs> um which i found amusing he said it still counted it was the same side just different food. different food um and so we grew up with a lot of documentaries on the war and a lot of films on the war so i have to admit i got a little bit oversaturated but i remember watching um the great escape and obviously the memorable whistle Yes. Um, just marking me as a kid. Uh, oh, Alec Guinness. Alec Guinness, I, yes. I was like, why am I blanking on this person's name? And I remember his portrayal. You don't mean the Great Escape, you mean Bridge on the River Kwai. Yeah, I'm talking yes. about the Bridge on the River Kwai. Um, and so I remember his portrayal and just being struck by the intensity of that film, um, but also the levity that was within it. There was like a, it was the indomitable British spirit, yes, well, which they always like to put in these films. Well, the Brit Bridge on the River Kwai is one of the greatest films ever made. I would argue it's Alec Guinness's finest performance. Mm. Um, I think what's brilliant about it is that in one sense, the, the mentality of both the Japanese and the British is curiously aligned in how stubborn they both are, yeah. which is, I love the fact that they really play that sort of two sides of the same coin thing. Meanwhile, the Americans don't lose perspectives like well we've got to blow this thing up and alec guinness at that point he doesn't want them to blow it up and i love the way that that sort of descent into madness and the irony of that is so brilliantly done again it's about in a sense apocalypse now and bridge on the river Kwai share a certain dna it's about people going mad yes and um and i really and the, of course that last sequence in bridge on the river Kwai is so tense and david lean's such a great director and, and you know there's there's nothing in that i mean it is a masterpiece but um 
I do really, really like Alec Guinness's performance in that film, and that really is a standout reason to see that film. Well, I think both that film and also The Great Escape are telling a very interesting story in terms of the cultural differences between the British and the Americans in the yes, war. Yes, yes, indeed. Which is a really important one. You see that very distinctly in The Great Escape, I You think. do, although there were no Americans at Stalag Luft, whatever yes. it was, the, the, in that particular... Details, thing. details. I, know, I mean, it doesn't really matter, because I think Great Escape is true to the spirit of what happened. Actually, the actual details of the escape as laid out in in the film are accurate yes um the other there's other stuff that's invented i mean the hilt's character the steve mcqueen character didn't exist and there was no big motorbike chase that well let's be honest there's no way he managed to get to them well well, i know as well but it's kind of funny as well because i I mean i love that film because it's i feel like i've seen it so many times i mean it's just as good now as the hundredth time i saw it And I'm convinced that if I watch it enough, he will. It'll eventually change, and he will get to Switzerland. Yes. So it is. It has got that element of kind of action adventure fun to it. But at the same time, it is poignant too. I love the um, the sequence with the Donald Pleasance character when he, you know, the, when he goes blind, and that whole thing with him and the guy, the James Garner character. Um, it's ju- it's just brilliantly done. Well, one of the things I wanted to ask you because we talked a lot about the initial spout of films that came during and after World War II, really. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of modern takes on this kind of stuff, we have a really interesting merging recently with um, Captain America and Wonder Woman, where you've had superhero movies set in a war oh, yes. time. Yes. Would they be considered war films? Um, well, that's an interesting question. Because they take well, place on the front lines. I mean, no, and they are superhero films yeah I, mean, let's, well, let, let, I don't think you can really call them war films in the truest sense but um and actually especially captain america because that's about a entirely fictitious nazi division that never existed whatever you know that the hydra, is, hydra yeah so so i don't think you can really compare but um i do think that there is a certain way especially in wonder woman um the horrors of world war one are right there yes um and they do that quite well i think um no, I don't think you can call them war films. No, I'm thinking about it now. I don't think you can. But I, I, I like both films, I should be clear. Um, just, to, just to say one other thing about... Um, the, oh, sorry, carry on what you, you were going to say something, sorry. Well, I was just going to talk... Uh, before that time period, there was quite a gap because you had... I think it was in the early 2000s, a time period where you had things like Band of Brothers, you had Pearl Harbor... And a couple of films that came out, which all of a sudden seemed to bring World War Two to a generation that hadn't really thought about it much. Well, I think that um, Saving Private Ryan was the trigger for that. Yes. And actually, that is a film that I should mention here quite heavily because, not because of so much of what the story's about, but because, well, there's two big factors in it. One is the actual direction of the film tore up the rule book i mean it totally it's one of the most influential films ever made in this way that opening sequence on omaha beach with how bloody it was with how immediate it was with the documentary camera style and the the way that it was you know it eschewed all the big swooping epic nicely constructed shots and instead gave this real immediacy and visceral terror to it unsafe of course. Yeah. It really did. And I think that it was entirely unsentimental. In fact, you can take that opening sequence of Saving Private Ryan. That is some of the greatest cinema you'll ever see. The rest of the film is good, but nothing matches the opening. Yes. And I think that um, it was brilliant for that reason alone. 
the other, the other thing that's interesting about Saving Private Ryan is that it's got some quite complicated arguments about, for example, how do you treat prisoners of war? Well, we let him go because we can't um, we can't afford we're on this mission and we can't afford to keep him with us. But then he's just going to end up back in circulation with his troops. Or do we execute him? And that's wrong. And there is no right answer. Yes. And of course, you know, you know what happens in the story. So. I like the fact that they try to embrace those complex themes in a story that is still about a kind of, you know, it's the Nazis and the, you know, the, the, the allies sort of good evil sort of divide. So that, that was, that was really interesting too. And I think after that, you got Band of Brothers. Um, I'm not a fan of Pearl Harbor, to be honest with you. And Michael Bay, we all know what we think of Michael Bay. (laughs) Pearl Harbor was like the weirdly, it was like the fast food of war films, I think. That's <laughs> I think how that's, I would describe it. That's actually it. a fairly good description, actually. There are much better films about Pearl Harbor. That really isn't one of them. Um, I also rather liked, uh, around the same time, The Thin Red Line, the Terence Malick film. Um, I've talked about The Hurt Locker. Um, there was... Okay, I want to just give an honourable mention here to a film that's very not widely seen, but is really, I do really recommend checking it out. Uh, it's called The Big Red One, Okay, it's directed by Sam Fuller. I think um, he did some very interesting films. And in this, it's about World War Two and a platoon of soldiers in World War Two who and who kind of go through various battles, including D-Day, and eventually they end up liberating one of the you know the death camps. And it's got Mark Hamill in it, yeah, in a rare non-Luke Skywalker good acting role, yeah. Okay, and he's actually really good you know, uh, in this story. And it's got... Because um, he's a great actor. <laughs> and it's got Lee, Lee Marvin's in it as well. Yeah. And it's a really good film. I don't, I don't want to say too much about it other than it's quite understated and powerful. And there's one sequence in particular near, near the... I mean, there's there's a number of very memorable sequences in it. At one point, they, they, <laughs> there's a gunfight in a lunatic asylum. And... One of the on the impatient the patients there are just kind of watching, and one of them picks up a gun and starts shooting. And goes, I'm sane, I'm sane, you know, oh kind of, you know. But then, then there's a sequence right near the end involving the liberation of the death camps that's incredibly powerful and haunting yeah. and moving, and definitely worth watching just for that. Well, speaking about death camps, uh, how do you feel about things like The Boy in Striped Pajamas? Not a war film. Interesting. No. What would you call it? Because it's not a film about armed conflict. No, it's 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 a drama about the Holocaust. It's a, it is a film about the consequences of armed conflict. Though. Of course. Because what happens is directly related to the movements of troops in terms of... I do understand that, but for the same reason I wouldn't call Schindler's List a, a, you know, a war film. Yes. Do, you see, do you see what I'm saying? It's not really... Because it's not to do with, directly with armed conflict. Um, I would also say the same about... Well, there's a number of films that kind of touch on it but aren't really yeah i wouldn't call the sound of music a war film do you yes see I mean? I mind you that's set before the war so yeah that really isn't a war film it's the preamble a preamble <laughs> um i do have one other thing i want to mention there's a russian film called come and see have you watched that no i've never seen come and see okay actually let's not talk about it then. <laughs> you're like <laughs> and i don't want to talk about that one. well it's one of those things where i think it's better if you've seen some of these things there, there was one more have you seen full metal jacket yes Okay, so can we talk about that quickly yes, instead? Yes, go for it. Right. Full Metal Jacket is brilliant because the first half of the film, where they're doing the train washing and the brainwashing of the Marines, that to me is more harrowing actually than anything that comes afterwards. And I don't know if that's by design or not. Well, it's like the dehumanization of yeah. people that t- t- suck out all the humanity and place back in 
whatever you want. Well, the reason they it's interesting because they found that in World War Two and and that you know a lot of people hadn't fired their rifles because they just couldn't do it. They couldn't. And and the thing about the Marine training was that they would then break down your humanity deliberately so that you would mm. become a killer. Mm. And the the horrifying part of that first half of Full Metal Jacket is that's exactly what it, it it exposes that brilliantly and you know compellingly to a point where the war in vietnam almost feels like a relief i mean okay so you get that very tense sniper yes. thing at the end but honestly nothing matches that first half in full metal jackets i think that's some of stanley kubrick's finest work so yeah but that then circles back to what we talked about again and again about the evil within people and the fact the potential for evil within men which i think is what the best war films all come back to quite honestly um but even more recently, um, why am I going to blank on what it's called? The one with Brad Pitt? Oh, the one in the, in the tanks? Yes. Oh. And Shia LaBeouf? Yes, I know the one. I know the one, but I can't think of the name. What's it called? How can it's you not? The, I the one look it with up. The, the one with the tanks. The one with the tanks. <laughs> the one with the tanks. But that felt like Hollywood's latest go at war films again. I mean, yeah. apart from Dunkirk, which is obviously super yeah. successful, but I would say they're quite different films in terms of what they're trying to achieve i think that sometimes you see that i don't necessarily have a problem i want to be clear about this i don't necessarily problem have a problem with a war film fury fury yes thank you i don't necessarily have a problem with war films being thrilling and exciting and gripping and do you understand what i mean so as i think what i have the only time i've ever had a problem is if i feel something's militaristic to the point where it's kind of that's why i have a big problem with a lot of michael bay films and they're not war films necessarily except for pearl harbor but they're sort of offensively militaristic in their outlook. I mean, I would make the same argument for Rambo or for not the first one, because the first Rambo was actually about something interesting about not necessarily a very profound way, but it was at least about PTSD a little bit. Whereas the sequels, the second Rambo is just, it's like we're trying to rewrite history to say America won Vietnam almost. I mean, Uh, they would love that. And then you've got, and then you've got, and let's be honest, we all try to rewrite history to say Uh, that we won whatever the last thing was. Of course. So there is. So, so there is. And then you get something like Top Gun, which is again. I know people love that film, <laughs> but it's basically a naval recruitment ad, a naval aviator recruitment. A naval piece. recruitment ad or a naval dating ad. <laughs> <laughs> it's only those two things. But you understand what I'm saying, don't you? About those sorts of subjects are. I mean, that's not a war film. Really, but I think. But... Well, I think that's basically an attempt to try and sexualize it, if that makes sense, or objectify it. Yeah. It's objectifying war, essentially. It's creating war porn, <laughs> I think. Well, I don't know that it is because it's not set during a war particularly. I think that it's it was more a kind of recruitment ad. but Or maybe not war. It's making, like, military porn. How's that? I suppose. I suppose. <laughs> that that I would go along with, definitely. But no, war, what is it good for? I mean, in my, in, in my opinion, I, and, I, and I think this is worth ending on a, on a serious note, um, I'll be honest, I'm not a pacifist. Okay. I'm not a pass much. I absolutely hate war and, and everything that's, you know, and I've, you know, and as I say, I've studied history and I know the reasons why a lot of things happen, but you know, I have to be, I, I think you have to ask yourself this question. I would love to be a pacifist. I would love to be able to have that idealism, but I am with great reluctance, not a pacifist. Do you think war is inevitable and therefore in our nature? Um, I I actually think, unfortunately, it is. It is, and I think that I think I can't remember whether we said that on this on this podcast or a previous podcast. But um, you remember we said about people don't learn from history. 
trouble is the people who do learn from history i've learned from history i've read a lot about history you know and and um but i'm still doomed to repeat it yes because nobody because not enough other people learn from it 100 percent. and that's incredibly frustrating to me and we will repeat those mistakes unfortunately it's, it's a tragedy yeah and there does come a point you know you can only really call yourself a pacifist if you're prepared to stand there and watch your i guess your loved ones be gunned down and of course i'm not prepared to do that no and so no i'm not a pacifist but i think it, it comes back to human beings how we're wired and are you wired to fight flight or freeze indeed what's your basic what's your basic instinct well in that situation i'm sorry but i'm picking up a gun (laughs) i thought you were gonna say uncrossing your legs well no i mean because of a basic instinct reference oh i see (laughs) (laughs) and and we anyway (laughs) and we were almost going on to a tangent yes well i think that's what all we've got time for today on the war podcast so thank you for listening let us know if you have any questions but from me sam from me simon we'll see you next time here at the tangent tree